Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay. We are back in Peter Katz's office here recording in person today, which is a, a treat in these COVID times. Sue, great to see you. Yeah, it's really nice to be back in person. And um, Peter, thank you for the buying me a coffee at lunch a moment ago. You're very welcome. And it's wonderful to have the embodied experience that makes all the difference. Absolutely. And uh, we're very excited to have joining us as a guest today, a former Anglican bishop in the Diocese of Brisbane, also um, spent 15 years as the Bishop of Canberra. George Browning is our guest. He's just released um, the book, Not Helpful Tales from a Truth Teller. George, thank you for, for joining the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. I enjoyed the lunch too, by the way. <laughs> and it's a great joy to be back in these buildings in which I spent some very fruitful times and very happy times. I have to ask off the top, I've never met a former bishop before. Do I address you as George or is it is it like the president? Are you Bishop George for the uh, rest of your yeah, life? Yeah, Bishop George for life, really. <laughs> a member of parliament asked me how I like to be addressed and I stupidly said, I prefer your beatitude, if you don't mind. <laughs> and, and she corresponds with me in those terms since. <laughs> I won't divulge her name. You're right. Um, well, look, to, to start with this today, because this book, I suppose, that, that you've released is something of uh, a memoir of yeah. your life in, in mm. ministry, how you yeah. came into ministry, yeah. what you've been passionate about all the way through. Um, the title of the book, Not Helpful, yeah. uh, comes from an interaction you had in the late 1990s with John Howard's LNP government, who Indeed. were in, in power in Australia at the time. Just to set up the conversation, can you share the story of, of where that title came from, where the phrase not helpful came from? Mm. I, I was invited to speak in the Great Hall of Parliament, which your listeners may know is a fairly big space. I think there were a couple of thousand people there. And the talk, I think, went quite well. It was in the days when John Howard was presenting a black arm man view of history and not wanting much to be said about Aboriginal rights or culture. Anyway, I gave the talk. It was well received. And then the next morning I had a phone call from his office to say, would I go up to see him? And I had no idea why I was going up there. And so I, up I went. <clears throat> And um, he wasn't actually in the office when I got there. His senior staff were there and so on. And without buy your leave, do you have a nice weekend, Bishop, or anything like that, they said, did I know I'd upset the Prime Minister? And I said, well, no. But if I did know, why would that worry me, you see? <laughs> and they said, Bishop Browning, what you had to say yesterday was not helpful. So that's the title of the book. And yeah. the reason for it is that um, in the blurb in advertising the book, it says that, these are words from myself, <laughs> truth is a two-edged sword. If you embrace truth, it's transformative. But mm -hmm. if you're trying to hold on to a position of privilege or authority or power, truth in those circumstances is usually very unhelpful. Yeah. And so if you're a prophet or somebody who wants to speak truth, what you have to say is not very well received. Mm. It is interesting as you look back through history and you see the, the people who are, had prophetic sort of positions mm. who maybe yeah. people like Martin Luther King who were adored apparently by all sides now yeah. but were very much not helpful at the time. Well, to those in power. Ab absolutely. And of course, uh, Martin Luther King lost his life. Uh, yeah. And um, the prophets of the Old Testament said that they wished they weren't yeah. because the message they had to give was not 
not a popular message, Jeremiah or Amos or any of those guys. Yeah. It is interesting because we so often talk about the Christian faith as good news. It's good news for people. But it is also in some ways um, challenging and bad news. If, if you want to stay in a certain sort of privilege, it, it's fair to say that it won't feel like good news initially. Yeah, well, Christianity is essentially about challenging authority and power. It yeah, is, yeah. both within the church itself or within religion, but also in the secular community. Yeah. yeah. I always come back to that Richard Raw quote that before the truth sets you free, it tends to make you miserable. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. I, and I think that that's probably the, the not helpful. Yeah, thing. yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, the quote about Jesus, a uh, prophet is not without honor except in his own country. Yeah. And I'm, we'll probably come on to this later, but the fundamentalist churches think of prophecy as foretelling the future. Yeah. But the biblical tradition of prophecy has got nothing to do with that. It's, it's got to do with um, speaking of that which should be in plain sight here and now and, um, yeah, yeah. and actually responding to that which uh, requires to be responded to. Now, George, there'd be many people, just to quickly touch on this, this mm. John Howard story before yeah. we delve into some other parts of the book. Yeah. There'd be many people who voted for John Howard in Australia at the time, thinking yeah. he was a Christian prime minister. Yeah. You know, he, he was public about his faith. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly the, the image of him was as a, a mm. Christian man. Yeah. And yet the, his people are telling the Bishop of mm. Canberra that you're being unhelpful. Um, what, what do, how do you make sense? How do you explain that to people who might find that confusing? I think there are two or three things to say about that. I, I'm actually writing a blog at the moment, <laughs> uh, which I'll probably post tonight, about this disgraceful behaviour of Dutton in terms of the Biloela family. Mm. And it's almost unbelievable. I'm saying in the, in the blog that while I fiercely disagree with John Howard on many, many things, I never doubted that he was a decent man and a man of integrity, which is not something I think of Mr. Dutton. Um, but the other side of the, the picture is that John Howard is of the generation who thought that the church was there largely to support the institution of the government. Mm. So, you know, we're the Church of England, aren't we? Uh, we're, Queen's on our side, isn't she? Uh, we're part of Westminster system, aren't we? Etc., etc., etc. So I think he... In his head, he assumed that the church was there largely to give respectability to his form of form of um, politics, really. Yeah. And uh, object, he told me on another occasion that to stick to my prayers and stay out of out of uh, politics. <laughs> to which I replied, "Listen, there is one field. Politics is the art of administration and of negotiation." And it covers the whole of life, including the church and sport and everything else. And I'm in the business of life celebration, which has to do with the whole of life. We play on the same field. We actually come at it from two different perspectives. Are you still surprised, Sue, that, that people can read the Bible and sort of remove the political, social challenges from it? Yeah, I guess it's surprising. I think the uh, it's very hard to get past what... what Bishop George was talking about that the wedding to the institution, that idea that that occurs in a few areas of politics that somehow that the church is is wedded to um, the formal institutions, the Church of England particularly so because of our history, mm. uh, and not to see that the 
the, the gospel always subverts itself. You know, Christianity is is naturally subversive. You cannot hold to it. For, I think it's just about people not going deeply enough into the tradition and not looking at the origin of the tradition and not realising, uh, well, I think sooner or later, the further you go along the journey, the harder it becomes to avoid the subversive nature. Yeah. A few years ago, Jim Wallace, who's one of the great... Um, Christian socialists really in the United States uh, got and he did it when he was quite a young man he he took a pic, uh, copy of the Bible and with a razor blade excised any reference to justice and he ended up with what he called the American Bible <laughs> and now it's republished now to this day it's published as the uh, Poverty and Justice Bible and all the Instead of the words of Jesus being in red, which is one of the sort of more pious expressions of biblical literature, um, all the references to peace and justice are printed in red. And it's amazing just to see, imagine all the red pieces as excised bits with razor blades, wow. just to make the point that without those references, the scriptures are pretty hollow. Yeah. Give you an example from the Old Testament. Um, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament is Jeremiah, and he he worked in the sixth uh, century BC, and he was thrown down a well by the by the powers, and whole whole sorts of terrible things happened to him. The reason why he was unpopular was he said, "If you actually believe in God." then you have ethical responsibilities and one of those ethical responsibilities is not to enslave another human being. The king at the time, for economic reasons, couldn't fulfill what he wanted to do without slavery. So he enslaved his own people even. Uh, and the king um, then said, oh my goodness, this is a terrible thing. So he set the slaves free. But he found economically he could, still couldn't do his business so he re-enslaved them. And Jeremiah had to speak into that situation. Yeah, so. Wow. Mm. And I think even when you, we, we, as we're recording, we're uh, relatively recently out of Easter. And I find it remarkable when you read the Easter story, how the political message has been taken out of that, that basically Jesus's crucifixion is him being told, this is not helpful. <laughs> this well, message is not helpful. Well, exactly. Both, both in the secular world with Pilate and the Romans, but also in the religious world. Yeah. Um, it, it, um, you're not, we're not to forget that... Um, um, the religious authorities had ambitions of their own that that he was he was challenging. Mm. I actually love that reference in your book launch last night. I think it must have been Richard, your son, saying yeah. that uh, what's interesting is not only what is helpful and what is not helpful, but who gets to decide yeah. what yeah. is helpful yeah. and not helpful. And yeah. we can look at the Easter story. You can look at every situation in human history, and often we we stop noticing who's doing that deciding. Mm. We listen yes. to the rhetoric, but we may not actually pay attention to go where mm. is the power going mm. that is making a decision about what can be said what cannot be said yeah. wow yeah i i remember in one of our recent episodes with brian mclaren on his new book he he used this latin phrase which translates to anything that is received is received according to the manner of the receiver mm. and i i suppose i think about that sometimes you know in in exploring how we can have a a culture of Christian mm. political leaders mm. Mm. who don't seem in any way to want to follow the Christian ethic through in yeah. terms of justice and yeah. equality. But I suppose if, you're, if your mindset and your framework is so comprehensively around enshrining mm. power and, mm. and continuing the privilege mm. that exists in society, mm. you will probably read even the most subversive message 
as support of your agenda. Is that is that fair? Well, as you're talking, I was thinking that um, your readers obviously can't. This is not TV. They can't <laughs> see a copy of the book. And if they could see a copy of the book, it actually has one of Banks's drawings or cartoons on the front page. Mm. Uh, if any of your listeners are familiar, it's the girl with the balloons. Uh, it is a very subversive cartoon because it, it's actually, I, I saw it first, it's been appeared on a number of places, but I saw it first on the separation wall between the Palestinians and Israel outside Rachel's tomb, near where Banksy himself has established a hotel called the Walled Off. And, um, and uh, the cartoon basically says, in the end, no wall, no power, no authority will actually protect injustice from justice. Even a girl with a balloons will actually scale this wall. And if at the end of this podcast you're thinking this all sounds terribly miserable, remember that point that in the end justice does prevail. Yeah. Resurrection follows the Good Friday. And often the greatest triumphs emerge from the greatest tragedies. Mm. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, I, I, I do want to get into a couple more stories you have from your time in Canberra around the Australian political sphere. But yeah. I'm wondering if we can... Because the, the book starts, I suppose, with a, a recount of your childhood yeah. and of how you found your way into this yeah. work. I've got a couple of questions that mm. I'd love to ask you on that. The first one, though, is just from a human point of view, what was the experience of telling, you know, truth-telling about your own story? Mm. What, what was that like for you? Um, well... Um, I, I've come to the conclusion that you cannot be a valid truth-teller unless you are prepared to be vulnerable in relation to your own story and in talking to others. So um, the, the, uh, the book, particularly some parts of it, um, lay me fairly naked. And, mm. and I think that... Um, uh, in order... For authenticity to come through, people need to be able to see you as you really are, as if I could put it that way. So, uh, um, I'm I'm not I'm not a person without mistakes. I'm not a person who's always seen things the way I currently see them. And uh, I think the great journey of life is to grow in grace and to one of the great words of the. Um, of, of Christianity is metanoia or repentance, which isn't mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa. It's actually um, the capacity to see with new eyes and having seen with new eyes to behave differently. So um, uh, I, I, in writing the book, as I said last night, <coughs> one of the motivations was for my grandchildren because um, I, um, I'm utterly committed to the rightness of the Christian faith but utterly distraught about the way it is perverted, particularly by fundamentalism and and um, and anti-intellectualism and um, and uh, conspiracy theories and uh, um, the, pl the playing on the vulnerable, etc., etc. That it greatly distresses me, and the world at large tends to think that's what Christianity is like. Mm. Um, uh, there is an Anglican school which I founded near where I live, and I'm told in the classroom from the teachers there, that most of the children think Christianity, to be a Christian, you are opposed to science and that you um, you believe the world was made 7,000 years ago or something silly or 
um, et cetera, said, or that uh, somehow or another the devil's going to come and poke you in the eye <laughs> in bed at night or something. Uh, so um, I just, I feel that I don't want my children to have to choose between a, being a bigot or a cynic. Uh, I want them mm. to embrace life and to embrace God and to embrace one another and to see ultimately um, the, the truth is the relationships we have with one another, with the world, with the earth, with, our, with the past, with the future. And um, at the end of the day, Christianity or Christ is the great connector. Mm. And as, as you trace back your story as to how mm. that mm. became, I guess, your life's vocation, mm. Mm. It, I find it really interesting because you, you write about the faith of your father and yeah. how it was quite a different faith to yours, so much so that he actually wrote to oppose your ordination yes, he did, to yes. the bishop, which is remarkable that, that yeah. as you're getting ordained, your own father yeah. said this shouldn't be happening. Yeah, he said there's enough hopeless clergy around without me being added to their number. Um, yeah, I... Uh, my father's now died and um, I'm one of eight children and all of us had a fraught relationship with him and I've pondered particularly since he's died I find I actually feel now quite guilty that I didn't engage with him more I just was respectful and when he said outrageous things I just didn't ever respond and and I wonder what made him to be the way he was. And I'm, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Mm. Um, <clears throat> he, had a f he grew up in the Great Depression, couldn't get a job. He sought work in Canada, Rhodesia, and even in Australia, and flew back to Britain in 1939 at the beginning of the war to fight in the war. And um, uh, he, he had a very... Um, the God that he seemed to believe in seemed to be very, uh, not cruel, but um, not exactly full of grace. And mm. um, But um, so I did a PhD, which is another book, um, some years ago now, and I actually did it. I did the PhD for the sake of my father. It was it's, it. He belonged to a thing called the Sabbath Day Society, which took too literally the fact that uh, there are seven days of the week and you and you have to set aside one and you don't play sport and don't go to the shops and so on. And so I wrote that particular thesis and to actually just say Sabbath is about the celebration of life. You know, Sabbath is, is the way in which you celebrate the whole of the other six days. It's not actually about a single day. It's about, about the whole of life. Anyway, long answer to your question, but it's interesting... Um, I've had a lot of conversations with him since he's died mm -hmm. and I hope those conversations have been as helpful to him as to me mm -hmm. and and I think um, uh, we, we can blame our childhood for all sorts of things but there, must, there has to be a time in life when you actually say well this is my life and I'm responsible for for the way it's turned out uh, my father isn't my, my background isn't I've chosen certain things in life and, and I am the result of my own choices and that's how I see it now. How do you remember finding a faith sort of grounded in this truth-telling when you were raised in one that probably yeah. you know, resembled more so the, yeah. the faith of the politicians perhaps that we were talking about a moment yeah, ago? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, uh, school and I didn't get on very well. Um, I left when I was 15, 
partly because I brought actually into the lounge room of the house and my father said to me, any further investment in your education is an entire waste of my money, so will you leave school? So I did when I thought, woo, that's great, <laughs> suit me fine. So I left school without it. Um, and then I, I went, I was greatly impacted by um, a mission taken by uh, Archdeacon then Bob Dan, who later became Archbishop Dan of, of Melbourne. And um, his insights um, just blew me away. And I sort of thought I need to hear more of this. And I ended up um, being accepted for, for ordination. And I went to theological college and with a complete open canvas. So I actually don't think I knew what a surplus was or a cassock or what Anglo-Catholic was or evangelical. I, did, I knew nothing of that. It was just a complete open canvas. And so everything was new to me, and I I shone in Old Testament, which has been my, one of my areas of expertise since, and also in theology. And it was a t total shock to me, and it was because somehow in my head, I love ideas that take me somewhere, and I love the exploration of things, and I love things to make sense. And one of my things about truth is, if truth is truth, it's true here, it's true there, it's true everywhere, and you can't have a truth that's in religion, which is in contrast to experience people's experience of the world. Um, and uh, there was an argument once in, in the 20th century between um, Karl Barth and Emil Brunner, and Karl Barth was arguing that uh, you can only come to the Christian faith through revealed theology, through reading the Bible. Whereas Emil Brunner said, no, you can come from the created order. And, um, and uh, my experience is that all the truth that is in the Christian faith is around us in the created order. And you mm -hmm. can come at it both ways. Mm -hmm. So the whole of the created order is about community. It's about fellowship. It's about um, belonging. It's about my contribution to the tree that's next to be or whatever. So um, uh, I just love the exploration of ideas. And I, I love the exploration of theology. And I love talking about it. And I am blessed to be in a family where your listeners might find this, you know, impossible to believe. But we uh, get a bottle of red wine out, sit down and start with the rugby, but end up with theology and God. Mm. <laughs> that's fascinating. Um, I think others might be the other way around. They might try to have a theology conversation <laughs> that quickly turns into rugby. Um, but that's that's amazing. Um, so so I suppose this this is that's the the, the start of the book. Your story, yeah, your personal, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess almost autobiography of yeah, how you came is, into yeah. all of this. Mm. Um, you did find yourself then as the the bishop of Canberra. You know, as I've already mentioned with the John yeah, Howard story. Yeah around some of Australia's most notable um, politicians yeah. and policymakers. Yeah. Uh, I think it'd be really interesting to explore what that was like for you. Uh, because if we speak about prophecy, if we speak mm. about being mm. a truth teller, mm. probably being, I imagine being in that context, it's more, um, more vivid how... I don't, not dangerous necessarily, but combative mm. almost it might have seemed. Mm. You know, when, when you are actually mixing with these politicians, yes. when they are the ones who are, who are making policies that might be cruel or unjust or, yeah. or at least supporting yeah. the status quo, yeah. and you are on, on, you know, regularly mixing with them, yeah. what were those relationships like? What was the, the nature of that? Well, um, for me, the important thing is not to back off. You know, not not to water things down simply because 
Um, I'll give you an example which relates to me and Desmond Tutu. Um, Desmond Tutu stayed with me for a week in uh, in oh, the wow. early 1990s, which was such a joy. He he is in life what he appears to be, uh, you know, on the media. So he's a wonderful, wonderful man. And the, the foreign minister at the time was Gareth Evans. Gareth Evans was known to be sort of the lead atheist in the world, <coughs> in Australia at the time. We went to see Gareth Evans and the tele television was there and... Um, uh, talking politely to one another, television left, and Desmond leaned across to Gareth Evans and said, uh, Minister, are we talking about anything important today, you see? <laughs> and, and come in spinner, Gareth Evans, uh, Gareth Evans said, well, uh, of course, Your Grace. And, and Desmond said, in that case, we'll pray. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and away he went. It was such a beautiful thing. And I doubt that anybody had ever prayed in Gareth Evans' office before or since. Um, and by the way... I have, not a close, but I have a, a real connection with Gareth Evans to this day because he's a great supporter of the Palestinian cause of which I'm also involved. Um, <clears throat> but um, uh, the, there are standouts and uh, one of the absolute standouts, and this will come as no surprise to your listeners, is uh, Sir William Dean, who I became very close to. And um, Sir William as Governor-General in those days, saw himself as the gatherer of the nation in terms of crisis and so on. So when the Threadbow disaster was on or the Black Hawk disaster or the canyoning disaster in Switzerland and various things, he'd ring me and say, George, we need to gather, gather the nation, we need to have a service. Will you ring the Arch Roman Catholic Archbishop Francis Carroll and various other people and we'd organise that. And it was such a rich, rich thing and... Uh, Sir William Dean, as you I'm sure know, was one of the people who decided the um, Na Native Title Act. He was in, on the High Court in those days and has a very, very strong sense of justice, but also a very strong Christian faith. Hmm. So, um, but um, I, I got to be in the company of them. I got to know uh, Gough Whitlam extremely well. One day, Gough said to me, you know I'm one of yours. And I said, uh, well, Goff, it doesn't show. <laughs> and, and, and he said, um, he said, well, he said, I used to go to that school of yours, meaning Canberra Grammar. And he said, we used to get these interminably long s sermons at the Presbyterian Church of St. Andrews because the, the Whitlam's were Presbyterian. And he said, I went to my father and said, <clears throat> I feel a conversion coming on because he said, I heard that you could get a short one at the Anglicans. <laughs> <laughs> so he said I was confirmed, which I'd be checked up, and, and he was, by Bishop Bergman. But he said, I've never been baptised. And I said, well, that's totally irregular. And he said, yes, yes, I know. He said. But then he said, but of course, the smart character that he is, he said, but of course... I've been, I've been a lifelong Constantinian, you know. Uh, if that goes over the top of your listeners, it is that Constantine said you shouldn't be baptised until your deathbed. Yes. So when he died, I actually wrote a letter to Nicholas's son and, and asked whether, whether Goff was baptised on his deathbed or not. And uh, <coughs> I got a lovely letter back saying, no, he wasn't. Uh, but then he told me some lovely stories about Goff's... Um, influence in the family and how 
which is not a surprise to me or probably to you, that he was very well f formed in the scriptures and the stories. And, and even though he wouldn't like to admit it, many of the values that he held uh, came from that background. Mm. Those maybe are some of the more positive, mm. um, you know, hope-giving experiences yeah, of yeah. some of the humanity you yeah, encountered there. Yeah. You, you also do write in the book about some of the less yes, um, hope, hopeful ones. One in particular is an encounter you had with Alexander Downer, who was the foreign minister in the early <coughs> 2000s in the government. Mm. Um, you were at a, a function that he was at. He made a beeline for you. Yeah, Can you did. tell us what happened? Yeah, I, I had a few run-ins with Alexander Downer and... Uh, I'd be having a few more if, if he was still around the place because he doesn't seem to have any idea of justice or integrity at all, if your listeners know anything about Timor and his involvement in that dreadful matter, um, which is now continuing on with the what's being done to um, Witness Kay and Bernard Cleary. It's just shocking. Um, Alexander Downer should be in the dock, not these guys, uh, for his involvement in those days in really stealing resources from Timor. But um, we were in a, I was in a reception at Government House. Government House is not very big, always a lot of people there. Um, he was in one corner and I was in another corner and he saw me and and like parting the waters with across the Red Sea, he came across me and right up underneath my nose and said, and can't the rich be saved? And to this day, I have absolutely no idea what provoked it. Uh, <laughs> it must have been some talk I'd given or something he'd heard or whatever. I don't know. And anyway, I just said, oh, good evening, Mr. Downer. George Browning. He said, I know who you are. And off he stormed. So um, to this day, I don't know. But that I've used that illustration in a chapter on capitalism and in which... Um, people still talk of communism and its threat. Communism is not a threat in the 21st century. Um, but capitalism is. And I think that capitalism unreformed could totally undo civilization this century. Mm. I may not be around to see it myself, but I fear about it for mm. my children, grandchildren. So that, that's the, what the chapter's about. And I mm. talk about the way in which money and power are corrupting civilization. Mm. I thought that was a really significant chapter in the book because mm. it declared mm. it declared that something that we take for granted is actually mm. toxic. Because, yeah, absolutely. You know, and we saw it in the COVID. You know, a lot of the COVID narrative has been about saving the mm. economy mm. and even sacrificing people to the economy, which mm. I thought was illustrative of what capitalism mm. demands. Mm. It actually mm. demands sacrifice mm. to it. Uh, and we... We lived COVID in a different way that actually showed you don't have to sacrifice mm. people to the economy. And, and I think it's really important that um, chapters like that are, are read and meditated on that this thing that seems to be so essential to who we are is actually a system that could, does not have to be. We could actually be living, in, and if we applied you know, the prophetic values mm. and mm. The, the bits of the Bible that capitalism excises, uh, we could actually be living a completely different system that would uh, be in harmony uh, with the planet and we wouldn't have to have people living on the streets. But there's this myth that sort of capitalism is the only system that's valid. Mm. 
Mm. And we had that, you know, triumphalism yeah. of the neocons when the Berlin Wall fell. There was this idea that capitalism had been proven mm. to be the correct, mm. um, godly, uh, was the end of history. I remember mm. they actually declared that it was the end of mm. history because mm. capitalism had triumphed and now we're going to just cruise through this glorious golden age where mm. capitalism held sway over the globe and everything would be okay. Mm. Um, you know, after all, wealth trickles down, mm. never has, never will. Mm. Um, so I thought that chapter was really significant yeah, for um, our time and climate change and all of that. Yeah. What, what I hope your listeners can understand about this is that the Bible assumes that human beings never own anything. That's what the Bible, that's what Christianity assumes, that we are custodians of things and there's nothing wrong or evil about being rich. The question is how you became rich and what you do with the riches when you have them. They're the two issues. So that was my answer to <laughs> in the chapter to Alexander Downer, uh, can't, can't the Rich Be Saved? Nothing wrong with being rich. But in the end, we don't own anything. And the, the Old Testament itself is very specific about it, that you any property that you have um, has to be returned um, uh, to the corporate, as it were, the community, uh, in 50 years, that's what the principle of jubilee is about, and um, and in the in the New Testament, um, Jesus speaks enormous amount of volume about money and power, very little about sex. Funnily enough, which the church <laughs> certain sections of the church seem to be besotted about, but uh, enormous about about this, and it is, I think, the great challenge, and the reality is that unless we can deal with this, we won't deal with climate change either. And if we can't deal with climate change, then the prospect is very dismal. So we've got to deal with capitalism in order to deal with climate change. Mm. I actually love the way you bring forth the idea of that common good mm. and the fact that we just, I, I don't think you, you have to recognise the place of the common good in Christian thinking. That, oh, you know, that absolutely. that is, it, it's, it's all, it's at the heart of it, the, the common good, and yet capitalism cannot exist with common good. You can't, the two together, they, they don't work. Someone has to lose in capitalism. Mm. Someone, there has to be something better mm. and bigger that you are climbing over someone mm. to get, mm. you know, and that we just accept that there's losers is one of those things. Mm. And people, quote Jesus saying the poor you'll always have with you as some kind of justification mm. for saying there's always going to be losers and of mm. course that's, that's not what that's about and it completely ignores um, how we need to have new eyes to see where we can create common good. Mm. If your listeners want to know, give an up-to-date example of what we're talking about, please reflect upon the last year, the COVID year. In that year, all the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. Why? Because the rich gain their riches from assets, the poor gain their, 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 their capacity to cope from salaries. Assets increased, salaries stayed the same or went down. And um, until we can actually properly value people who work on salaries, the equity gap is going to grow. And that's the, one of the huge problems uh, with with uh, neoliberal capitalism, which which will cause great revolt and, and people will not put up with it, ultimately. Mm. One of the bizarre things about um, capitalism, to me, 
you know, in, in terms of talking about people like Alexander Downer, mm. and I particularly mm. had this moment with watching Donald Trump mm. in his, I guess you could call it a concession speech, mm. the day he left mm. office and um, Joe Biden was being inaugurated mm. and, and mm. Trump flew out to an air base somewhere and gave mm. a quick speech before heading off into the sunset, fingers crossed. Um, and he gave this speech, Trump, and as I was watching it, I felt this weird sense of compassion for the man mm. because I thought, you are so broken mm. and so sad mm. and so wounded. Mm. And you look at someone like Alexander Downer, and I, I don't think anyone's looked at Alexander Downer in mm. his lo- public life mm. and thought, that is the sort of human I'd love to... F- I'd mm. love to experience life the way he seems to experience mm. life mm. every day. Mm. So there's this bizarre thing about capitalism where even the biggest winners of the mm. system, if you look basically at the reality of what is life giving, mm. what brings you into warmth and openness and joy and fellowship and these things, the winners don't seem to be getting any of that. The, the system's not working for them. No, that's that's the great uh, enigma really or puzzle that um, uh, all the work that... Uh, that's done on social investigation of lives and so on indicates that those who are happy are the, one, the ones whose lives are utterly integrated uh, meaningfully into the lives of others and those who simply are gathering for themselves are the ones who never find happiness in their own gathering to themselves yeah it is bizarre but it's the truth and, and I think that to me that's that's a captivating message because I think there is an idea of socialism or communism, there's an mm. idea of the Christian ethic, the Christian message, that it's coming for the rich and we're going to take them down and you've had your time in the sun and we're now going to destroy you. And I think it's as much good news for them as it is for for the poor in a sense because they are as, if not more, in some ways constrained and unhappy yeah. by this system that promised to fulfil them and yet so deeply yes. hasn't. Yes, well, before when we were having lunch, we were talking about uh, self-interest and... Uh, I find it very sad that so often our Prime Minister speaks of things as if Australia's best interest or self-interest of the nation is somehow or another different to the self-interest of the best of the world, because it's not. Uh, You know, that uh, it is our interest, it is in our best interest for our neighbours to flourish. It is in our best interest for the whole world to come on board in relation to climate change. It is in our interest that the international rule of law is upheld, etc., etc., etc. And uh, it is nonsense to, to all the time judge things about Australia's best interest as if it was different to everybody else's best interest. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose when we, when we look at um, the political systems, mm. and particularly in our context here in Australia, mm. because that mm. is where you've had a, a great mm. deal of... Mm. I guess experience. A question I think a lot of people ask is the the, the people who have been captivated by this message of truth telling. Mm. I suppose there is sometimes a sense of maybe maybe you should run for office. Maybe you should get involved. Mm. We could be the change that actually brings mm. this message into mm. the public sphere. Mm. It's hard to think of too many times where that has actually uh, worked. You know where where the system hasn't eventually won over the person or mm. maybe the system demands that you actually eventually mortgage out your integrity and yeah. and your core passion yeah. for success. Why do you think it's so... Like, from what you observed, why would it be so difficult to enter this system as a truth teller yeah. and do it from the inside? Yeah. I think um, one, of the, one of the problems today is that... Um, the political system, and in in some way the public discourse, has 
fall and fell of a binary mindset. So um, uh, it's now known that a very large number of politicians leave school, go to university, and join their particular party. And they're schooled in the, in the objectives and the ideologies and the ambitions of their party and see life only from within that party. And uh, whereas in the past, people came into politics from experience in a whole range of fields which had nothing to do with politics. And there are very few these days genuine um, but people who are not professional politicians, mm. if you like. And a professional politician is not so much, in, sadly, but it's the truth, is not so much interested in good policy as he or she is in the, in the establishment of their party. I'll give you an example. I won't, I won't reveal the name on this case, but I was in, I was in a um, politician's room a few years ago. This politician is now a senior member of Morrison's cabinet. And this particular person had had experience in the Middle East. Um, her parents had been there working, etc., 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 and knew the situation and knew what the Palestinians suffered. So I said to this person, uh, "So you'll speak on behalf of the Palestinians' rights in Parliament?" No, I won't. Why won't I? Because it is not in my political, my best political interest to do so. Is there anything that you will speak about in Parliament if it is not, even if it's not in your political interest? No. So politics for you then is just a game. It's actually, it, it's speaking of things from the perspective of where you're going to be politically. Yes. That, that, that is a very truthful conveyance. I was actually being kicked under the table by one of the other members of my party at the time. But... Um, that is the situation of Australian politics. Yeah, wow. uh, there are some exceptions. There are some exceptions, um, but not too many. Well, I think we've seen this as well with former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, who since leaving office yeah. on things such as Murdoch and, and Murdoch yeah. Media, among many other things, has become intensely vocal in a way that you know he was seemed restricted to be able to yeah. be when he was actually in power mm. and it is almost like you can't succeed in that field without mortgaging your truth telling and your the thing that maybe the passion and fire that got you into the thing in the first place yes because um it's it's worse even than simply one party against another it's it's actually one faction against another faction within the same party mm. and um uh the factions in the Labour Party are pretty well known. The left and the right and the centre are fairly well known. And I can tell you which ones are in which faction. But it is also true in the National Liberal Party that there are factions. And the factions are very, very divided. There are, there are factions in which... Um, we might come into this conversation, but there are factions that call themselves conservative, which is, believe it or not, the extreme right, and there are the other factions calls itself liberal, which is less than extreme right, um, but neither live up to the the name that they've chosen for themselves. 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very curious. I, I think there's hope in the fact that so many people in Australia are tired of the spin yeah. and are tired of this kind Absolutely. of um, career politician. And that comes up in the, the, what is the tension and the risk, I think, is the cynicism we could all fall mm. into and the despair mm. we could all fall into going, that's just yeah. politics, that's just the way it, we can't expect any kind of leadership from there. Uh, and I wonder, I'd be curious, George, to know your opinion of where we could go with this because... I think there is um, democracy has great potential if we could only try it properly, um, and yeah. I wonder how we could turn that uh, sort of sense of um, how we're, how sick we all are of the spin into something positive and life giving, and, mm. and maybe a re restoration of something like democracy. Yeah, gosh, that's a big question. I don't know that I can give a very hopeful answer to that. The two signs of hope that I ob have observed lately um, are, number one, that those who come into politics as an independent mm. make a very great contribution. And Stegall, who took over from Ava, is, is a very, very good example of that. She is essentially um, a conservative, and we might come back to the, what that definition means in a moment. She is a conservative in the best sense of being a conservative. Um, uh, and, and the other good sign is that the Labour Party has worked for a long, long time on um, female representation. And they now have um, several women on their front bench who are e easily capable of being the leader of the party and of being Prime Minister of Australia. Um, Tanya Plibersek is one of those. Penny Wong is one of those. Christina Keneally is probably one of those. And even Katie Gallagher is perhaps one of those. And um, <clears throat> so, um, but th that is not the same on the other side. And um, the truth of the matter is that some of the great leaders of the world today are the female leaders, mm. um, as in um, New Zealand, as in Germany. Mm. And... Um, um, the behaviour in the parliament recently from the boys' club has been so disgusting, so unbelievably disgusting. Not only disgusting in what's been done, but disgusting in how it's been responded to, which mm. is equally disgusting because yeah. there's been no accountability and nobody's been made, yes. made to answer. It, it, it's almost extraordinary. <laughs> well, it, it isn't almost. It is extraordinary. It is extraordinary, yeah. Mm. I, th I think I agree with you. I think the sign of hope, because uh, th I'm always looking for the sign mm. of hope, yeah. but I think, I think it, is, it is the fact that we're getting more and more independence mm. because the independence eventually have to be... Once you get enough of them, mm. they actually have to be negotiated with. Mm. And as we saw when uh, Julia Gillard was Prime Minister, a minority government or a government that needs mm. to actually be in negotiation with other people mm. ends up producing really good results. Mm. And I think, I think the independents are one of the ways in which uh, we can subvert the party-controlled system mm. because the parties are going to have to listen to these voices who do not owe their allegiance mm. to the party. Mm. And so you can get someone, as you say, like Zali Stegall, who, conservative, is the person who's leading the charge on, mm. on climate change mm. in, in the House of Representatives. So we've got these two political parties that are both paralysed mm. by all their internal stuff that means that they don't want to rock the boat and they don't want to upset big business mm. and all those sort of things, or the unions, it doesn't matter you know, who the control is. 
and you've got this one voice, Sally Stegall, who is actually uh, changing the dynamic. Mm. And a few more of those people in the House of Representatives particularly would actually um, be a real sign of hope. And I think there are, you know, there are, I know there are electorates around here where people are thinking that the next election, there is a chance that we will get some more independence. Mm. And because they don't owe their allegiance, mm. you know, they become d democratic. They actually, mm. they actually, you know, the, the the independents in Victoria actually hold um, morning tea events round tables and actually mm. ask their constituents mm. what they think. Mm. So they end up going, well, my people say, mm. and I think it's I think it's actually um, going to transform our politics. Mm. It, and, and otherwise it'll be, as Sue says, the, the um, cynicism will take over and people mm. will disengage and mm. then the boys club or whatever club it is in mm. ascendancy at the time will um, control the agenda. Because mm. if we all withdraw, um, so you know, all power to the citizenry and go the independence, I think. Mm. I'm actually a bit fascinated <coughs> at the failure when we're talking about the the failure in Canberra um, to respond to the sexual violence mm. that's present there, mm. um, yet we have a very flag-waving Christian leader. Mm. Um, you know how uh, who mm. uh, ha I'm interested in the failure, given that we have people who are card-carrying Christians, mm. and and yet they haven't managed to, even though they're clearly not the perpetrators, they haven't responded well. And mm. I, I wonder, you know, the that the role of Christianity in politics when when you look at an example like this. Well, mm. you have every right to, you know, uh, throw that question in the air, and the only possible answer that I can give to you is that, at the end of the day, for the prime minister, there is only one thing that matters. Only one thing that matters and that is to have a majority in the House. So um, the fact that he hasn't moved Porter on or uh, Lamming on or uh, I should say Angus Taylor on too because he's told enough fibs um, and a few others um, is because he's got such a slim majority and so he he just needs to hold on to power and, uh, and that really is the ultimate corruption, isn't it? Who who was it? Lord Acton who said that power corrupts and total power corrupts, corrupts absolutely, and that's what we're seeing really. I mean, it's a it's an utter corruption. Mm. At the start of this conversation, though, you you did say, speaking of a sign of hope, you said that um, that you know, looking at the Easter story, yeah. there yeah. is the resurrection. Yeah. That because at the moment, I think there's a lot of people, as as Sue has touched on, as Peter was talking about, with that cynicism that feels like, well, why even bother speaking truth to power when in the past five years it mm. feels like weirdly power became immune to truth? Mm. It's this bizarre uh, thing that mm. we saw happen in America with Trump where mm. things would clearly objectively happen that were recorded on camera, mm. would be put to the man, mm. and then would wash off. Mm. And it, I think there were a few years where a lot of us were just like having to recalibrate, being like, what? Mm. <laughs> Those aren't the rules. Yeah. The rules are quite clear. When you do that and it's found out, yeah. you're gone. Mm. But a apparently not anymore. And I think we've seen that happen in the UK and we've now s we've seen it happen here in the past few months that things happen that everyone you know might wake up and go, oh, well, that's it. It's all going to change now. And then a week later, it's status quo again. And we think, how did 
Mm. How did that wash off? Yeah. How did that not stick? So what what is the if we seem if we feel like we're in an age where truth is immune, uh, sorry, power is immune to truth. Mm. Yeah. What is the resurrection? What is the you know what is the maybe if we're hearing that truth is not helpful at the moment, <laughs> what's the what's the yeah. resurrection that that can follow? Well, I think having more and more podcasts like this for people to understand that the status quo cannot remain. The thing is broken. Mm. Um, things are broken. And I think once people r- realise that, then there will be change. I mean, in America, the facts of the matter are Trump is no longer president. Mm. He isn't president. And despite unbelievable activity on behalf of his followers and so on to try to overturn the... the popular vote for Biden, Biden is the president and he's making big changes and his own personal faith is shining through. There's no question that it's his Christian faith that drives Biden and uh, and there are many aspects about it about which we would rejoice because he's even fighting with some conservatives in the Roman Catholic Church about issues, as you probably know. So, um, and I think... Um, it's people ask me whether there's any hope in Palestine um, the the Mandela figure in Palestine is Barghouti who's in jail and um, uh, he is the natural president of Palestine he would unite all Palestinians and he, he would bring peace he wouldn't be wanting the the overthrow of Israel, he'd be wanting Palestine to have its place, its rightful place, um, on its own, uh, in in its own terms. And I think ultimately the Berlin Wall did come down. Ultimately, apartheid did collapse in um, in South Africa. Ultimately, Manda- um, Mugabe was overthrown, etc. And mm. and every there are times and seasons and unfortunately they don't happen quickly enough for us um, but uh, the tide will turn in Australia and it's up to people like you young man um, to be yes, part Peter. <laughs> to, to be part of that turning I mean um, uh, uh, the book is um, chronicles you know, my meagre life, but in my time, I have found that by taking a risk and using my office as the bishop in Canberra, I was able to um, achieve considerable change in certain areas and to to have an influence which um, uh, was worthwhile. So um, my plea is for people uh, to stand up, take, Mm. and take, fill the space because to abdicate the space somebody else fills it so you know I, I, um, I've got confidence that my children and grandchildren will not let the side down I'm just sure you mm. won't either mm. and the student strike reminds us that yeah. you know, there, there is a lot of power when the people and young people in particular get active and you know, it doesn't happen change doesn't happen fast enough but then when it does change it happens in a way that takes people by surprise you know that mm. there's you know that image it's one and, and resurrection is certainly the case and we do have to go through holy saturday as we've talked about in the past 
But you know, when the Berlin Wall came down, um, we basically went to bed one night and the Berlin Wall was up and the next morning it was down. Mm. I mean, it was that fast. Once it crumbled, it crumbled. And apartheid, exactly the same thing. When the, when the, um, the, the, part, the leaders in um, South Africa realised the game was up, they just threw in the towel and it was over. And it was like... A system that had seemed like it would endure, it's like the Thousand Year Reich, you know, it seemed like it would endure forever. Mm. And then suddenly it's, it just shows how, and, and one of the encouraging things and hopeful things, it just shows how um, vulnerable these systems that want us to believe. It's, it's, it's actually the Wizard of Oz. You know, the Wizard of Oz is this great construct of a guy hiding behind a curtain yelling in a megaphone to make it sound like he's big and as soon as someone pulls back the curtain and goes oh it's only a little guy pretending to be something monstrous it's all over and one of the, one of the things we have to take encouragement about and for is that the the perceptions of power are actually e ephemera and once you start saying you have no power over me which is what the young people say at the student strike, we can actually make a difference. We can actually change the world. We're actually going to have a different future other than the one that you tell us that we're going to have to have with your gas-led economy or your new power station in Queensland. We're not going to put up with it. And it shouldn't be hard to do that because no. the facts of the matter are that the, a significant majority of Australians, using the climate change as an example, a significant majority of Australians want much more action mm. and it, the government is, is not representing the Australian people exactly. on this matter. Yeah. So it's already over mm. in one sense. Mm. It's already over. Mm. We have to live as if it is. Sorry. You, I just think too, but I think you're right, I think it does happen suddenly mm. and I think the, 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 the force behind it is growing. You mm. know? But however, I think regardless of whether it can happen in our lifetime, whether we can see mm. that we, we don't have um, the luxury of abandoning the fight. Uh, and we also, regardless of whether we, I guess I'm saying, whether we see that solution coming quickly mm. or not, mm. it doesn't change our response. Because no. particularly as Christians, we're called to uh, that um, yeah. robust involvement mm. and engagement Correct. in, in mm. political life. And it's a robust <coughs> involvement and engagement that's not about defending doctrinal propositions, mm. which is what we're hearing is the majority rhetoric of Christianity in the public sphere at the moment, mm. is about um, defending doctrinal propositions um, mm. or, or personal piety or a perceived moral um, code. Mm. But instead, we're actually meant to be robustly engaged mm. with justice for, for peace, for reconciliation, for having the eyes to see who's actually deciding what is helpful and unhelpful. Mm. Yeah, are they mm. holding too much sway over public mm. dialogue? Mm. And to engage fully wherever we see that people who are oppressed or marginalised don't have a voice, or whether that be the planet itself, or whether that be other groups globally, mm. you know, we... We're just not given the luxury of abandoning. Mm. That's right. Absolutely. And it only, the, the Berlin Wall only fell because people did exactly what you said. And they did it despite the fact they thought they might have to do it for 50 or 60 years. And then they got the surprise that it happened overnight. But it was because they were prepared to just stay in there and do it for as long as it takes, even if it looks like you're being defeated. You know, I was watching the night that the... Donald Trump lost the election. I was, it must have been CNN. It was a pundit they had on CNN, I think. Um, 
who was a former Republican. And they were just like almost head in their hands saying, I knew this would happen. And they were asked, what did you know what happened? They said, I knew the, the Republican Party has succeeded in America largely because most people haven't been that involved in the process. Mm. But I knew by winning our four years of this guy, we were going to wake people up. And good luck getting them back to sleep now. <laughs> it was basically what yeah, they said. Yeah, that's right. That's that, right. You know, that it, it felt like like as mm. much as it was, how could this possibly this possibly yeah. be happening? You know, mm. in a sense, maybe Donald Trump yes. was the Good Friday. Yeah. <laughs> that will bring about a resurrection. Yeah. And that, that's why the the student strike is such a hopeful thing. You know, these kids who have seen a vision of what the future can be are not going to be put back into a box. Yeah. They are not going to be put back into a box. Let me give you another example of, of hope here, is that we're, we're on the threshold of the democratisation of one of the most important ingredients in human life, that's energy. And um, Margaret and myself in our little house in retirement, not only do we have solar panels on the roof, but we also have batteries, solar batteries, and we will soon be plugging our car into the, into the energy we produced. And um, and so, but the interesting thing is the so-called conservatives are opposed strongly to the to this process of democratization, and um, so that if 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 ordinary people have control over the capacity to generate energy, that changes a whole host of things, and it it changes the power. Um, structure and it changes the the kind of um, the equity problem because what is it the rich people can have that poor people can't have we you know we actually have our own house we have our own energy we drive our own car we provide the energy for it etc but uh, I just find it fascinating that those who blurb on about democracy mm. oppose one of the main forces that will actually cement a democratized society. Mm. Well, well, that would probably be helpful. And I know we are moving towards mm. the end of our conversation, but we've flagged it a few times mm. already, George. And mm. So it might be really helpful here to explain the terms conservative and liberal briefly. and yeah. Because that they have come to mean a fair of something a fair distance away from what their origins were. Yes. Can you just explore that a little bit? Well, um, it's, it's not hard to understand what, what conservative means in its original sense. To conserve, it actually means to conserve those things that are of fundamental value. So um, um, uh, the dean here, Peter, has to be a conservative in the sense that he is conserving the value of this monstrous Gothic building here. Um, but because it has, it has implications for life that are, be, are beyond the actual bricks and mortar itself. And he is conserving what, uh, hopefully, um, a centre of life for community that uh, allows for arts and drama and music and, and worship and, and bridging gaps and reaching people of faith and no faith, etc., etc., etc. There's so much that can happen here. So he, sh he needs to be a conservative. And as somebody who's for a long time now become a strong environmentalist, uh, you can read about it in the book, but I, I became what I am as largely as a result of the 1998 Lambeth Conference. And um, I am a conservative. I, I, I want to conserve the basic ecological structure of Australia, which makes Australia the country that it is. However, the word has been stolen from that 
to mean conservative in terms of a person who holds on to um, what what are loosely called right wing social values. So a, a socialist is somebody. Uh, sorry, conservative is these days is somebody who supports in inverted commas family life, who is suspicious of uh, people of different ge who um, uh, who do not subscribe to. Uh, a heterosexual relationship, etc., etc., etc. So it's it's been stolen by people who want to uphold uh, a position on sexuality and gender. Um, and a liberal, um, I'd love to be called a, a liberal in the best sense, because a liberal is somebody who wants to be involved in the best of everything, the best of culture, the best of the arts, best of science, best of music. Um, who 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 is. Somebody who's who's had a liberal education, the best of liberal education, is somebody who um, um, you know has experienced the depth and breadth of life and is enhanced by it all. And neither word, although they're used politically, neither word expresses the reality that lies behind them. Mm. Yeah, I just think that that's a really interesting distinction point because, mm. you know, speaking of the mm. the dualism of it. Mm. Um, you know, we've come to stand a more as often more against rather than for, and yeah. and against something that wasn't the original meaning of the word. Mm. Because as you say that, I remember you said at lunch before mm. we recorded today, mm. a true conservative would have been the first person taking action on climate change. Yes, you know, which is a remarkable yeah. thing to think about. Yeah. But when you add it up, of course that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, and conversely, um, the word socialism has also been turned on to mean something quite awful. It is, it's, it's to be equated the way it's used with Stalin or, um, or, or, or communism. Whereas socialism is basically a belief that in the end, good that is not common is not good. Mm. Uh, for good to be good, it's got to be common. Yes. And that's what socialism is. Whereas, and its opposite is good is good if it's actually in my, <laughs> in my war chest, as it were. So... Um, uh, I, I'm quite happy to be called a socialist, but uh, I don't use the term because of the pejorative way in which it's used. Mm. So I suppose then we're, we're in a culture that needs truth tellers Absolutely. More, more than ever. Mm. And it does feel like a lot of that, you know, we speak a lot about emergence and emergence of the spirit that happens mm. in or, or may, you know, very much also outside of the church and outside mm. of the tradition. Mm. Um, you know, I don't know, remember who it was, but someone on our podcast, I think at one stage said the church might eventually dwindle and, and end, but the, the movement of the spirit, the awakening, the, um, this truth telling that's never, that's never going anywhere. That's always going to manifest itself in some form. And so I suppose there is a sense here of speaking of the student strike, speaking of what's happened in America in response to Trump, speaking of in the past couple of months here in Australia, how women have collectively mm. stood up and said, no. <laughs> not, not anymore. That's mm. not happening anymore. Mm. There does feel like like truth is being revealed. Do, do you believe ultimately the truth that is being revealed at the moment ultimately is going to, to bring about reformation? Yes, I, I think the reformation is absolutely unavoidable. And um, it, I, I was sharing with, with Peter just before you guys arrived for lunch that when I first retired, I um, took some work in England. I worked in the Diocese of Salisbury in some deep, darkest Dorset in some rural communities there. And I went there with this, with this 
thought in mind, which has been in my mind for a long time, is that one of the problems with the church is that it thinks it has to do faith or religion or God for people. Okay? When in actual fact the role is not that, it's much harder than that, is actually to create the space in which people and God can do their business together. Have you got me? Mm -hmm. And so how do you do that? And um, I did two things in Britain. One, one was that I, I formulated a service once a month which was conducted by and for people who didn't go to church. And so I'd knock on somebody's door and say that once I got to know them, I'd met them at the pub or something, this might be a surprise to you, but you're, you're leading church in um, St. James's on Sunday, the 25th of June or something. And this is what you've got to do. Here's a Bible, choose some Bible readings. Here's, a hymn, here's music, you choose some music. Um, you bring a paper, bring some issues out of the paper to talk about and for us to f feel sorry and repent about. Here's a sermon, you've got to do this. It became the largest service in the parish. And, um, and when I had baptisms for people, I did exactly the same principle. I said, listen, um, or I was once asked, do you, do you do babies? And I said, yeah, I think I do, but I call it baptism. <laughs> this is the deal. Here, we're at baptism, we read from the Bible. Here's a Bible, take it home, tell me what passage we're going to read. Um, here's, a, here's some hymn books or song books. Have a look through here, see what we're going to sing. And one of you's got to give a talk. I don't mind whether it's a parent, godparent, grandparent, friend, doesn't matter who. These are the three things you've got to do in your talk. Number one, you have to say what this family stands for, what is its beliefs, what, what is its culture, what are, what are its hopes and values, etc. Number two, you've got to look forward to the future and say, and imagine the future your child's going to inherit and say what you and the godparents are going to do about achieving it. Number three, you've got to say where you think whatever God is, God fits in here. And while I was there, every single one did that, without exception. Mm. And so I think the way forward, the stupid part about it is that Christianity is not fundamentally a religion, as we said last night. It's actually a way of a way of, of living. It's a, Christianity is a way of walking, it's a way of following. It's a journey. And, uh, and we've made it into a religion. And frankly, most Australians don't like the religion. But they do like the, the, the whole kind of sense of there is more to life than simply what we feel, touch and see. Uh, there is much more to life than that and I want to be part of that and I want to know about it and I want to enter into it. And in my retirement, that's where I found myself. Uh, I'm no longer having to look after the institution, although I still love the institution. I actually live on the edge really and I, um, I uh, minister to people who say they're atheists. There were some atheists there last night at the book launch, oh. by the way, uh, or people who claim to be. Um, and, um, and I just love creating a space in which this person, Joe Bloggs, is sitting down here and in that empty chair over there is God and they're doing their business together. That's what I love most about my retirement. Mm. Well, the book is Not Helpful Tales from a Truth Teller. George, thank you for a life's work of being not helpful. <laughs> and may you be not helpful for many more years <laughs> to come. Thank you very much. I shall do my best. <laughs> and uh, we'll be back with another episode of the podcast shortly.